We've been monitoring his movements and he periodically pops up in people's home surveillance cameras. Only at the beginning of the year, there was he was caught on a home surveillance camera just walking through the neighbourhood at night in the Hollywood Hills and in the Los Feliz area. You are listening to Hey, podcast listeners, we're happy to bring you this interview that Tony Crosdale and I did with Tony Lee, filmmaker and author who's done some great work about a famous mountain lion in the Los Angeles area. As always, if you like this episode, please like us on your podcast listening app of choice. Please rate us highly. Please tell all your friends and family about it. Please feel free to get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. That's what Tony Lee did, and we loved his idea so much that we put it on the podcast. Of course, this podcast is a member of the Wildlife Observer Network family of podcasts. Please check out all of our great podcasts and subscribe to the Wildlife Observer Network stream. Thanks. We hope you enjoy the episode. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, and I'm here with our other co-host, Tony Tony. Crosdale. We're going to use last names a lot because to make things more confusing, our guest is... Oh, Tony Lee. Yep, Tony Lee. Um, and Tony Lee, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Sure. Um, I'm a wildlife filmmaker and producer, and I wrote a book and film called The Cat That Changed America, which is about P-22 mountain lion who lives in Griffith Park. All right. So introduce us to P-22. Who is P-22? And also, where's Griffith Park? I think we... Um, I, I know that I have this vague idea of Los Angeles. I was there once when I was a kid, but I don't know it that well. Sure. P-22 is a mountain lion. He's um, named after a long-term study by the National Park Service. They've been monitoring pumas in the Santa Monica Mountains. It all started with P-1 and then P-2. And so it went up to P-22 mountain lions, which have been tagged with a radio collar. And he made an incredible journey from the Santa Monica Mountains to Griffith Park, which is in the hills, Hollywood Hills of L.A., just by Los Feliz. And he was discovered in the park around around about 2011 by one of the camera traps from a wildlife biologist called Miguel Ordignano. And it was quite an incredible discovery to find this mountain lion right in the middle of Griffith Park. And so he's caused a lot of attention and study um, because it's surprising that a mountain lion can coexist with us in the middle of probably the second most populated city in the U.S. So for those who've never been there, what is Griffith Park like? Is this, and I admit at the time I wasn't sure when I was reading about this, I'm like, well, is this like landscaped with picnic tables and stuff? Is it like, pure forest like what does it look like sure i mean it's not very large it's about um, nine square miles and it has a carousel it's got children's activities it's got it's very famous for that observatory which overlooks a park if anyone's seen la la land they'll remember that scene with the observatory if, if you go even further back films like rebel without a cause with james dean and so it's quite an iconic park in Los Angeles, and it's it's well known for its mule deer as well. It's it's quite well populated, and there's an organisation called the Friends of Griffith Park, which monitor the wildlife. Okay, um, I've been there <laughs> a couple times. Yeah, 
Um, that's, that's really cool. And I think it's a, I think it's a head scratcher. Like how does a, a mountain lion, I mean, cause typically mountain lions require really huge ranges, right? That's, that's right. Typically they require about 150 square miles. Um, males are very territorial and they'll fight to the death for territory. And that's one of the reasons P22 as a young adult male had to leave Griffith Park. I'm sorry, had to leave the Santa Monica Mountains because he had to stake out territory of his own. Um, because there's huge competition for space and resources. And the Santa Monica Mountains aren't that large in comparison. They're hemmed in by freeways. You've got the 101 and the 405, um, and you've got the uh, um, Pacific Ocean to the south. So he's really trapped in this kind of sea. Um, and so he had to find and cross two freeways to reach Griffith Park and make a territory of his own. So uh, I guess does that happen? I guess it hasn't happened so much that we've seen um, a mountain lion in Griffith Park. Do we? I mean, I'm familiar with, and I'll, I'll back up a second to say um, that uh, the crossing roads is a huge challenge for lots of wildlife. I mean, I, I my background is more as someone who's into reptiles and amphibians, and there, you know, these are all animals that really don't fly, and so they they get they get killed on roads all the time and roads pose these major problems in terms of like how many animals they actually kill directly, but they're getting crushed as well as just sort of functionally being walls um, for wildlife that, that chop up territory um, with So I, I imagine when I think of this, that you're, you've got one that made it. Are there others that you guys find people find on the highways out there that um, around the Santa Monica mountains that try to make it out and, and don't. Absolutely. Mortality by traffic collision is a major cause of death of mountain lions in the region. Um, some of the mountain lions in the study have been killed on the freeways. And I think they, since they started the study in 2002, they've documented about 23 deaths crossing the 101. Because if you, if you think you're a mountain lion and you have to cross, you're actually crossing 10 lanes of traffic. Um, and so... A mountain lion against a 70-mile-per-hour vehicle doesn't really stand a chance. And so no. uh, collision is a huge, huge effect, especially on juvenile mountain lions. And when they reach the age of 80 months, they're just looking to disperse and find the territory of their own. And so they come up against this, you know, awful freeway. And so collision is a major, major factor. So I think we'll come back to this question of, of how you try to solve that in a little bit. Um, but, but how is P22 done? Like, is he, is he still there? Yeah, P22 is doing really well. He's about 12 years old now. Um, and he was recently captured just last month by the National Park Service. Because they re routinely have to check in on him to change a battery on his a radio collar, do blood tests, weigh, weigh him. But his... He's been described by the local press now as a senior citizen in LA. You know, he's, he's due for his pensioner card, I think, because he's, um, he's done really well. Um, but despite the fact that he's lived to the, that age, he's not really a success story in conservation terms because, unfortunately, he'll never find a mate. He'll never reproduce because it's very unlikely that any other mountain lion can reach Griffith Park in the same way he did because he really got lucky crossing those freeways. And again, he's, he's also hemmed in by urbanization, by freeways. 
So the chances of him meeting a female mountain lion is very slim. Do we see, I mean, whether him or other mountain lions, do they see them leave the park land? I mean, I think of like years ago, we did an episode about um, leopards in um, Mumbai in India. And it was an interesting story for a lot of reasons. But one of them was that it seemed like the le- several leopards had really become truly urban cats. Like they were, there were some that sort of like spent time in the park, some that sort of straddled the park in urbanized areas, and some that just lived like um, slipping around apartment buildings and that kind of thing and eating stray dogs and stuff. Um, with the mountain lions in urbanized Southern California, do they s- stick to those like, to the big parks and, and forests or do they get out into suburban areas and, and, and I mean, cause I know deer certainly see no need to stay within parks. <laughs> you know? um, do they follow the deer out? Yeah. It's a good comparison. Cause I read that uh, the mountain lions of LA or P22 and the leopards of Mumbai are pretty much the only two big cats, which coexist in an urban spaces to that degree, to that level of intensity in densely populated areas. And we're fortunate to, not only because of radio color on P22, but we've been monitoring his movements and he periodically pops up in people's home surveillance cameras. Only at the beginning of the year, he was caught on, on a home surveillance camera just walking through the neighborhood at night in the Hollywood Hills and in the Los Feliz area. Um, in about 2016 or 17, he famously got caught um, under a house in Los Feliz and it attracted the attention of the world press, literally, literally a news crews outside that house. And P-22 was just underneath the floorboards of his house and there were helicopters hovering everywhere. CNN was there, it was just causing a real rumpus. And all he was doing, you know, was checking out the neighborhood. So. He does have this very wide-ranging territory, and it's his it's his home range now. Those neighbourhoods, the urban areas surrounding the park, and most famously in 2016, he allegedly broke into LA Zoo and ate a koala, which w- really brought him infamy. Um, but uh, LA Zoo didn't bear a grudge towards him, said that he was uh, doing what mountain lions do. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that part. It's fabulous. Um, sorry, uh, Tony. This brings to mind like you chasing a black bear through Roxborough. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I live in Philadelphia, and uh, um, you know, it's a very de- much denser city than uh, uh, Los Angeles, um, and quite big. Not nearly as big, but still very big city. One of the biggest in the country. And we had a um, there's been three black bears. Um, in this in the city limits that I know of, and one of them actually showed up on my street because I live in the far reaches of the city, but still, it actually in the city proper. So that was it was pretty exciting. But I, I'm I'm wait for the day that you know um, we get something cool like a bobcat, which is not unthinkable, you know where we are. But yeah. Well, Tony, you guys, Tony Lee, you guys have bobcats. Well, in 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 LA, we see bobcats get out more into neighborhoods, or do they also stick to the parks? They're, they're definitely being seen in people's garden spaces, but um, they're becoming increasingly rare over the last few years. And a big problem, which is also related to the P22 story, is the use of anticoagulant rodenticides, i.e. rat poison, which, which works its way up the food chain because people will put out rat poison, the rats eat it, 
And then the big cats, um, bobcats, coyotes, raccoons, even P22 was affected. They'll eat the rat poison and then it works its way up to the top, to the top predators. So it has a dev devastating effect on wildlife. And that's caused um, a loss of mortality in bobcats. Tony, we talked about this once with the Nature Center, right? Tony works at a Nature Center, an environmental center. Um, yeah, yeah, when I took it, when, when I uh, took it over, I took me a couple, I don't know, weeks or whatever, so I realized that there, there was a redenticide, you know, deployed like outside the building. Um, and, you know, I, I had to, I brought them inside that when the contractors came, I just, I said, you know, we can, we can't have this, you know, this is, this is not appropriate. And I've tried to get it um, not used throughout the system. Um, Cause you know, you see it everywhere. It's a shame. You know, I was, I was eating lunch downtown the other day in a, in a park. Um, and uh, I just, there's like fake rocks. And I realized that the fake rocks were redenticide, um, you know, deployment. And they're and they're those little uh, if you if you're if you're Mando in Philadelphia also just these little black um, plastic boxes that you that they put like at the corners of buildings, um, and they're everywhere, man. Um, it's something that uh, I think. Am I right, Tony? I think Tony Crosdale that um, the one of our at least one of our red tail hawks that people follow in Center City got killed. We think by rodentis, yeah, right? Definitely, it did. It, it did. Yeah, so this is a problem that that works its way. We were talking about a particularly big, charismatic animal like a mountain lion, and and, and of course bobcats, but um, also with you know just less less newsworthy animals, <laughs> red-tailed hawks and um, and foxes, and I'm sure owls and all sorts of things get poisoned by this stuff. Um, and it's a uh, yeah, I think. And if I remember, um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but Tony from Tony Lee, if I remember from uh, from the from your movie from the documentary that um, that uh, that there was that the, this the P22 story led to some advocacy around getting rid of uh, rodenticides in some some neighborhoods if I'm remembering that right yeah yes absolutely so I've been working with a group called Poison Free Malibu based in Malibu and they were very much campaigning against the use of anticoagulant rodenticides and. They saw a mountain lion um, a few years ago, which had been affected by um, anticoagulants. And they wondered, you know, how, how could those poisons kill such a large and beautiful animal? And they've been advocating very strongly against the use of rat poison, campaigning with Poison Free and other environmental groups to prevent the use of poison. And also teaching neighborhoods and other communities to store your trash properly, close those bins, not leave your trash out. Think of other ways to prevent rat infestation rather than use poisons. So yes, they're a big part of the story in the, in the film. I think that's a good message um, in general. I think the this is something that for Tony Crosdale and me came up um, in more of a broader context. We had a, 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 a what we considered a, an ill-advised um, campaign to ban certain kinds of herbicides in um, Philadelphia and the way they were doing it. But we're, we've come, I think we come down much more in what we you call like an IPM approach. Um, and what, what I think we, people tend to reach for one tool, like a pesticide, like a herbicide in some cases, or, or an enticide. And you really should start with sort of the 
I mean, there's a few levels of IPM, but like structural, but also I think like cultural. Um, and cultural is the things like you were talking about, like how, what you do with your trash. Um, and, you know, rats, they always say, you know, pest species need, um, was it food, water, and shelter. Uh, and yes. so if you've got a rat population and you can cut off any one of those three, um, then, uh, then you can deal with it without having to bombard your local ecosystem with anticoagulant poisons. Um, yeah. so, uh, so talk a little bit about the documentary. What got you into like personally into, into, into documenting the story of P22? Well, I was living in LA in 2016, working there at the time, and P22 became infamous for that story about breaking into the zoo. So he made national (laughs) national headlines. (coughs) I'd always wanted to do a story on urban wildlife, particularly in a city like LA, because you think it's quite impenetrable. And it still staggers me to find out, you know, there's a beautiful, magnificent cat living in the middle of the park in second biggest city in the US. So I contacted Miguel Ordignana and it was very appropriate to start with him because he was the first person to camera trap, um, capture P-22 on one of the camera traps. And the story evolved from there. He introduced me to Beth Pratt, who is campaigning for Save LA Cougars and the building of a wildlife crossing over the 101. And that just it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I was introduced to Poison Freed Malibu and so it was really just putting together all the pieces around P22 story through the voices of these great characters. And so are you, you were a filmmaker before this? Yes. Um, I started up with BBC in the nature department. I mean, my first job in TV was researching for David Attenborough. I was extremely fortunate. So I spent many years in, in the wildlife department before moving. Our to hearts all fluttered right there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, talk about the wildlife crossing. This is uh, this is the. I mean, we talked about how P twenty two himself is got kind of a sad story, you know, and that he's alive, but in a in an ecological sense, um, in terms of the population of mountain lions, he's functionally dead um, in the sense that he can't reproduce. Um, it, and uh, yeah, so so and we talked about sort of the how hard it is for mountain lions to cross highways and the problem of road mortality. Um, so what is this crossing project and what is it seeking to do? Sure. Well, the crossing, which has been in development for a while, as they said, spearheaded by Beth Pratt and Save LA Cougars, they're looking to build a wildlife crossing and striking ground later this year. They're looking, seeking to raise 85 million, um, which sounds like a lot of money, but in, you've got tremendous wealth in LA and so we just yes, you do. Uh, just need uh, a few wealthy donors and they've been given some good foundation money to strike the crossing. And not only to prevent the mortalities for mountain lions, as we discussed, getting killed on the 101, but also very importantly, to prevent genetic inbreeding because the population is very small in the Santa Monica Mountains. And we did a study and we found out that their genetic diversity was very low and almost comparable to the Florida panther in the 1990s when we did a genetic study. And so in building this wildlife crossing, it will benefit all wildlife, not just mountain lions, but also deer and raccoons or coyotes, whoever needs to cross for 101, but also provide a genetic bridge 
for the mountain lions. The mountain lions in the north can cross into the Santa Monica Mountains and vice versa. So you've got this exchange of gene flow, which is very important. So if you've got a better genetic diversity, you'll have better resistance to diseases as they come along. Because if you have a very low genetic diversity, you, you, your immunity won't be able to fight all those diseases that may arise in the future. Sorry, I muted myself there for a second. So you said they're striking ground. Like, what is the? Um, they're starting to, to work on it. What is the time frame? I, mean, I know that often these kind of projects get started before all the money is in hand. Um, yeah. And and so, what's the? We'll call it the the planned time frame if, if everything comes together. Sure. Um, well, if you want exact details, do go onto the Save LA Cougars website and contact them for details. But I know they've been developing the architectural plans for a number of years, and they're hoping to strike ground later on, in, uh, I think it's in the autumn this year, and start building over the crossing over the next couple of years. And so it has been a long-term project, but um, the conservationists are very passionate about it, and the local community are very much for it so it'll, it'll be extremely worthy cause and there have been very successful wildlife crossings elsewhere in the country or around the world and so this is a very timely um, wildlife crossing because when they built the 101 over 50 years ago people just weren't thinking about connectivity and habitat loss no one was thinking about the effect of mountain lions or wildlife and so it's long overdue yeah, I, I can, in my own head, I can think of a dozen places in our area. I'd love to see <laughs> some wildlife crossings. I mean, I, I uh, um, and it can be it, sometimes, I mean, what you're talking about, yeah, you might need like a, basically a bridge. Yeah. Um, and it's not just a bridge. You need a bridge that animals will feel comfortable crossing. So you essentially need a land, a bridge with soil or, or, or planting medium and then plants on top of it um, to give animals like some sense of security as they're, I'm using my hands as I'm saying this, but it's not going to come through an audio. But they'll sort of like weave through and feel like they got some cover. Um, yes. I know that I think about this in our area where, um, where play, and, and, and when we, we've talked about this in the podcast before, that, that things like railroad tracks and stream corridors function as, as bridges between patches of habitat. Um, and so I, every time I'm in, in the Philly area, you know, that's where I live, I drive around and I see these like really tight, um, I don't want to call it like bridges with very little space around a waterway or around the railroad crossing. And I wish they'd just, you know, have a little more open space on either side of the, the, whatever it is, the stream or the, the railroad track. So it can be better as connecting, but yeah, it's, it's something that, um, you've got something as grand as that. And, you know, I, I, I feel like, I don't know, Montana or Idaho or where I've seen like clips of, of some of these wildlife crossings. We've got like elk crossing highways or, or roads on, on these kind of bridges. Um, but we've got projects even in, um, in our area that I know are, are common in the amphibian world where, um, where you've got, uh, you know, people trying to like shut down roads for a night or a few nights a year or something like that to let salamanders across. So we're talking about, you know, big charismatic animals that need, you know, hundreds of square miles of habitat. But um, this is also a problem for little critters that, you know, travel a few hundred meters in their lives. Um, so, the I, how can people see the documentary if they want to check it out? Sure, the documentary has just been released on uh, the Earth Touch site, Vimeo on Demand. 
So you can great. just pay a dollar. You can just pay a dollar to watch it now, which is great news. So it's accessible to anyone around the world, wherever you are. Um, you, can, you can just stream it online. Uh, and so we did very well over the last few years. We were showing it at film festivals. We premiered at the Santa Barbara Film Festival in 2017. And um, we, we premiered in New York and LA and San Luis Obispo. So we're reaching out to those communities and had great feedback from that. Glad to hear it. Um, and so I'll note Tony Crosdale had to pop away to, um, to, to his, his Azalea, his, his daughter just woke up apparently. Um, so, and he'll try to make it back on, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue just with one Tony. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then you decided to write a book too. So tell us about the book. Sure. Um, the book's just been published, same title, The Cat That Changed America. And it's a children's book because I really wanted to reach out to the young generation because young people care passionately about wildlife. And we've seen yep. some great environmental activists in recent years like Greta Thunberg. And I just really wanted to reach out to those impressionable minds and that, you know, they'd easily fall in love with P22. He's got such a great story. He's very charismatic. Oh, the kids have really responded to his journey, this incredible journey. They really like the uh, road crossing, the motor crossing, because it's very exciting. So I use adventure, excitement, danger, and humor, most importantly, humor as well in the book, which kids respond to. So it's, it's, a, fun, it's a fun 10 chapters of what I imagine his life was like in the Santa Monica Mountains with his family growing up and why he and how he made this incredible journey to Griffith Park. Awesome. Thank you. And do you include him, uh, the koala incident in the book? No, that's, that's for the sequel because the book, <laughs> the, the, the book ends when he reaches a park, but I'm planning a sequel called The Hollywood Years. <laughs> so so yes, the, the koala will be top of the list of those stories. That, that'll be an interesting one to try to get across to kids because it's yeah. hard to, there's, if he'd eaten a, I don't know what a, a, a less cuddly animal would have been an easier story. If he, yes. <laughs> he, he broke in and ate a deer. Oh, he's already eating deer. No big deal. But <laughs> koalas, it's hard, hard to compete with koalas. Yeah. Um, even if I thought it was a hilarious story. Um, so, uh, so wonderful. Thank you. Um, I think uh, uh, I'm curious. So you, you're, you're in, um, you've been covering the story of P22 in, in documentary form and now in, sort of a fictionalized account aimed at kids. Um, you're in London. Uh, has, has this um, led to, to you looking at other, I don't know, other, other wild, urban wildlife stories or um, others, other similar stories of, of animals? I, mean, I know it's P22 is like a mountain lion that is in the perfect place to get coverage, right? Yeah. Like if, if, if P22 was in Denver, it might just be like an interesting local story that never got quite so far, but LA you're going to get, you're going to get, get coverage. Um, have you seen this story play out other places or is it, have you gotten an interest in sort of looking at this kind of thing elsewhere? I, I think so. I mean, as you say, it's very appropriate that P22 is in LA and the Hollywood Hills of all places is being likened yeah. to a movie star like Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio because he's elusive, he's um, he's elusive but accessible and very relatable to the public, just like a movie star. Um, and the camera <laughs> adores him. 
he's extremely <laughs> he's he's extremely photogenic, like some movie stars. So it's very appropriate that he um, is lives in the Hollywood Hills, in probably a very nice area, very very high priced real estate as well. I can't afford to live where P twenty two lives. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I couldn't either. And so yes, his story is replicated. And you mentioned already the leopards in India, also the tigers because um, I've just started researching a story on tigers in India, and they've, they've actually gone through a bit of a success story. We've heard so much about their decline due to poaching, but through conservation efforts, we're actually making somewhat of a comeback. But that brings them into conflict with people. So I'm, I'm turning my attention into a story on that at the moment, and I hope, hopefully that will get produced later this year. Um, but yes, I think... P22 ultimately is a great ambassador and role model to show that we can coexist with wildlife, even in the most crowded of spaces. That's wonderful. And I think uh, hopefully looking forward, we can build highways with, um, with, with wildlife more in mind. Um, and, and sort of, it's a, it's a, I think it's like an, a, a new, f- a next level of trying to think about how we coexist with wildlife. First of all, we don't kill them. <laughs> do our best not to actually kill them. Second, how do we make our homes more accessible? Uh, or, or more, how do, how do we make where we live more livable for them? And Tony Crosdale, you just came back for, to, I'll, I'll say, Tony just came back for uh, our wrapping up and he brought company. Tony, does Azalea have anything <laughs> to say on this topic? Is that anything you say, buddy? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> She's just looking cute. All right. <laughs> so, um, uh, Tony Crosdale, we're, I think we're, we're getting ready to wrap up. Do you have anything you wanted to, to ask about in terms of P22 or uh, big cats in, in urban settings? Uh, I guess I was just curious about any interesting prey items or, um, I don't know if you covered Aside that from tonight. koalas? <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, it's pretty up there. I think, I think they've been monitoring the National Park Service's diet because a few years ago, as mentioned, he did get mange as a result of eating too many coyotes and too many raccoons which had ingested rat poison. So those animals are on his diet, um, coyotes, raccoons, skunks, um, but primarily he eats mule deer. Um, Mountain lions have to eat about a mule deer a week. And he really is king of the castle uh, there in Griffith Park because he's got his own private deer estate with no one to bother him. So he takes, takes down the mule deer. Um, but it's when he, he, he eats those other animals which have been affected by the poisons, which, which is when he gets into trouble. So has there been an impact? I hadn't thought of this, but has there been, I, mean, I, I know that in our area, um, like I was just having a conversation. I read articles for a local environmental magazine. We were talking about a planned um, habitat restoration project. And of course, they got to take into account what do you do about deer eating all the vegetation before it has a chance to grow? Because here we've got... Um, we have big challenges with deer uh, overpopulation that in a lot of urban areas, there's no hunting or there's limited hunting because you can't discharge a firearm next to people's apartment buildings and houses and stuff. Um, and we create a whole lot of great habitat um, and we tend to, to kill off and then um, make it hard for predators to live there. It's the whole story we're talking about today. So you end up with um, like, for example, in our area, white tailed deer, which are closely related to mule deer. Um, that uh, that uh, sort of overbrows the native vegetation, 
allow exotic plants to sort of come in because they're, they're, a lot of those are species deer don't eat. Um, uh, you know, you plant saplings and the deer, um, you know, the male deer sort of like tear them apart when they're, when they're, when they're uh, getting ready to go into rut with their antlers. And, um, and I'm, I'm curious, like has, has the, has Griffith parks mule deer population been affected? Has that had any other sort of ecosystem effects? To, to be honest, I can't really answer that, but friends of Griffith Park will know. Jerry Hans, okay. who's, Jerry Hans is one of the um, contributors in the documentary. He's been doing connectivity study and monitoring the wildlife of Griffith Park. So they'll be a great resource to ask that question. I'll, I'll look into that. That's, a, that's, yeah. that's fun. Thanks. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a tricky thing. Um, all right. Well, in any case, uh, we've had a great conversation. I, you know, I've mentioned that we're on, we've got about, four minutes left or so to, to in the call. Um, so I think I'll wrap up. Uh, I, I'll thank um, Tony Lee for, for joining us and for being persistent about getting on the podcast. I think Tony Crosdale and I, we have small kids. We've got <laughs> a lot going on over the holidays. Um, we're trying to, oh, we got Azalea with a little cough. Um, we've got a, I've got a two-year-old and, and now she's gotten the habit. If she ever coughs, she like, even if she's fine, she like looks at you, like raises her hands a little bit and like turns around so you can pat her on the back. It's like gotten to be like a, a little, little thing she does. Um, so yeah. Uh, anyways, um, I was distracted by cute baby. Uh, so <laughs> what I'm saying is, um, I guess we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Um, thank you for, for, that's what I was saying is that, um, it can be hard to schedule things across time zones when we get two of us, Tony and me, who, who've got a lot going on in the daytime and we're trying to find times for it to work. Um, so I think I'll, I'll uh, Tony Lee took, our, our, took us up on our request that we always say in the podcast episodes, which is, um, if you've got an interesting story about urban wildlife, we want to hear about it um, and we want to get you on the podcast to talk about it. So thanks so much. Um, good luck with the documentary and good luck with the book. Brilliant. Yeah, Thank you uh, I, I just ordered a copy while we're all on the conversation <laughs> yeah well awesome. um, it'd be it'd be great to read to the kids um i've had some good yeah. compliments from parents who say it's a very very fun book for like preschool and learning awesome all right well thanks so much um and uh tony crosdale you have a great day as alia you too and uh, tony thanks. lee have a have a great evening great thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast